Last week, in the book of Ruth, we saw the flight of Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons from Bethlehem in the land, in the promised land, to Moab, just southeast, adjacent to the promised land, a foreign pagan land, a flight taken amid a famine in the days of the judges. And we saw last week in Ruth chapter 1 that that was an act of disobedience, which was followed by these tragic consequences, and that Naomi has now endured the death of her husband Elimelech and her two sons over the course of a decade. And so here she is. She's a woman. She's an alien. She's stranded in Moab. She's without resources. She's without an heir. She's under the dark clouds of a frowning providence. We saw that in our closing hymn last week. If you look at hymn 128 in the Trinity hymnal, God moves in a mysterious way. There's a wonderful closing verse about behind a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. And so we often find ourselves, and this is part of the power of the book, right where Naomi is, under a frowning providence with this idea that God is against us. And so with today's text, thankfully, the story begins slowly to change. Here, we get the first shafts of light in the darkness. And so I want to make three points from Ruth chapter 1. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. There's an outline there. The partings, the pledge, and the return to Bethlehem. So first, the partings. So we're in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. When The text says, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. Finally, this is the first sign of reversal or relief in the story. In fact, there are only two places in the book of Ruth, only two, where God is said to have acted, to have acted. Now, God is invoked a lot. People pray to God. He's talked about a bit. But he's only said to have acted, to, done, to have done something twice in the book. Once is here. He has come to the aid of his people. He's broken the famine. And the other is in the conception of Boaz's and Ruth's child at the end of the book. Both times, both times, the issue is fruitfulness. Right here, the land is becoming fertile again. Later, Ruth becomes fertile. And so the point here, we saw last week that God is, as the Lord, he is sovereign over death. And Naomi certainly has tasted the bitterness of that. But he is, he is more fundamentally, more basically, the Lord and the giver of life. The God who renews the face of the ground. important, I think, lesson from the book of Ruth that we cultivate gratitude. We are not in the midst of a famine. 
We should rejoice in the gift of food. We rejoice in the gift of life itself. These most basic, elemental, fundamental things that we are always taking for granted. This is a text that reminds us that God renews the face of the ground, that he is the Lord and the giver of life. So this is a critical juncture. God has acted. And word of that action has traveled and reached Naomi. Notice, the text says, that Naomi heard in Moab, just in case you forgot, in Moab, where she is not supposed to be. She didn't get the email on the church prayer chain. She heard by word of mouth in Moab. Someone told someone who told someone else who happened to be traveling and 70, 50, 60, 70 miles away in Moab, Naomi heard the famine was over. She heard, the text says, the Lord came to the aid. Notice this. He came to the aid of his people. This is the narrator's subtle way of saying, that's the people, Naomi, who stayed back in the land, who didn't flee. And for his people, his people in the land, God has provided for them. He's provided food and he's provided bread. And so now Bethlehem, which remember from last week, Bethlehem means house of bread. The house of bread is no longer empty. And so famines and the end of famines are both under God's good, sovereign providence. The text says it is the Lord, the Lord, the covenant God, who has come to the aid of his people. Lord is the name of the God of the Exodus. Right? It's the one who delivers from bondage and slavery, the one who redeems Israel out of foreign oppression. And thus, this theme of God as Redeemer, which is going to loom very large later in Ruth, is subtly introduced just by calling God the Lord. Notice he's come to the aid of his people. Or better, more literally, God has visited his people. This is what the Lord does, the covenant God does. He visits his people in order to redeem them. That is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He has visited. If you're waiting for God to show up in your life, he has already paid his visit. He has done it publicly and openly in Jesus Christ. He has visited and he's redeemed the people, which is why Luke 1 was the gospel lesson this morning. Because there, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies of Jesus at the beginning of Luke's gospel and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. All of these Old Testament actions of God to save and protect and defend Israel culminate in the visit of that God in human flesh in Jesus Christ. And so having heard that God has visited, that God has acted, he was active in the famine. He's active in the breaking of the famine. Naomi now does the right thing. She does the right thing. She prepares to go home with her daughters-in-law. The text says they set out on the road. That would take them back to the land of Judah, the land of the kingly tribe. 
There's something very interesting also here in Ruth chapter 1. When we speak, or the text, the narrator speaks of this return home, the narrator uses this word return, or some form of it, 12 times just in chapter 1 in the book of Ruth. It's the same root word in the Hebrew for repentance. Right? Repentance is turning around, returning, going back. So this is not, you're not just reading about a physical story, a physical journey here. Naomi is returning spiritually. She's concretely repenting. Right? Repentance doesn't happen up here. It happens with your body. She's concretely repenting. She's making her way back to God. Repentance is an embodied act. And her repentance, a lot like Yours and mine zigzags a lot. It's not clean. It's not linear. But she is, which is why the word return has to be used a dozen times in the first chapter. But she is starting to claw her way back. Right? She's, we mentioned last week the narrator paints Naomi, of course all the characters, but Naomi is especially painted with this kind of realism. She is like all of us, Something of a mixed bag. Right? I'm always amazed that nobody ever says that at anybody's funeral. Yeah. Well, John, he was a mixed bag. You know? He was like a 6.1 out of 10. People get elevated at the funeral, and that's probably a good human kindness. But Naomi is a mixed bag. And I sympathize with her greatly. I do. But her repentance here, at least at the beginning, really seems quite a bit like the repentance of the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to his senses, and he starts heading back to his father's house, largely for the sake of his own hunger. Oh, there's bread. There's bread back in, in, in Jerusalem. We better head back. She's returning in body, but her spiritual returning is a work in progress. So in verse 8, and it appears in this going back is, is something of an odd thing. It appears that they may have had like a checkpoint and agreed upon, you guys will come back with me to this point, and then I'll send you back to Moab. Maybe the border. We don't know for sure. But in any way, they start back, and at some point, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Now, probably, probably sending them back to their mother's home in the sense of saying, exchange mothers, exchange me for your own mothers, but also the mother would be responsible for preparing them for any future marriages. But in any event, we have to ask a question here. Why would Naomi not encourage them to follow her? I mean, what, what is happening? Is she embarrassed by having two Moabitess daughters-in-law? Does she just want to put the whole Moab experience behind her? You could understand that. I mean, there's three corpses back there. But, but more profoundly, you have to ask, does she not know that the God of Israel accepts foreigners? Does she not know that through Abraham he intends to bless all the nations and tribes of the earth? What is she thinking? Is she just being realistic? I suspect this gets us maybe a little closer. 
like a good practical mother-in-law, you'll be safer. You'll have better prospects for marriage. Right? You'll have less cultural strain if you stay among your own people. No one in Israel is going to want to marry a Moabite woman. Thus she begins a long history of in-laws giving awful advice sincerely. Right? This is one of the pervasive features of family life. And so the next thing she does is she prays, and she asks the Lord's blessing on them as they depart. And the prayer is apparently sincere, and, and, and notice this, it's a prayer that God will in due time answer. She says, may the Lord show you kindness. Now, we've spoken about this here before, but it's, it's very much worth repeating. Kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. You don't have to know a lot of Hebrew to get along in life, but this is a word that it's helpful to know. It's the word for covenant love, often translated in your Bible, steadfastness, sometimes translated as love, often translated in older translations as loving kindness. It entails faithfulness or loyalty, but the word also has a kind of warmth about it, a kind of generosity. It's very much the Old Testament version of the New Testament word agape, God's self-giving love for his people. And Naomi says that they, that is Ruth and Orpah, they've shown hesed, kindness, to their dead husbands and to Naomi, and she prays that God would repay them. Look at verse 9. May the Lord grant that each of you find rest. Provision, she means, progeny, protection, in the home of another husband. Here she's striking some important themes. The Lord, through his hesed, his kindness gives his people rest, Sabbath, in the land. It's a key theme in Scripture, and it'll play out in this one family's life. Now, as I said, this is probably a sincere prayer, though we can't rule out that it's a kind of boilerplate for Naomi, you know, what, what we might refer to as general Christianese, the stuff anyone would say at a time like this, may the Lord bless you and provide for you. But there's something more important going on that we have to draw attention to here. It's pretty obvious. It's laying right there on the face of the text. But it's Naomi's confusion. Remember, she's a zigzagger like us. Just how is the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, supposed to show his hesed, his covenant love, and give his rest to these women who you, Naomi, are sending away from his covenant presence and into the land of their enemies and their idols and their false gods. And this is like taking your son to the front of a brothel and then praying, may God bless you and keep you and provide rest for you in his presence. You know what's wonderful, though, by the end of the book, and, and it's good for us, God answers our garbled prayers. And he answers our confused prayers and our theologically distorted prayers. Now, he has to unbend them, clean them up, straighten them out, align them with his purpose. But he does here. Nevertheless, 
This is a real hodgepodge of sincere but bad human advice, some desire to pray and bless, and a complete lack of theological depth. All that's bound up in the Naomi package right here. Now again, it could be partly because of the raw emotion of the situation. Right? You can see this at the end of verse 9. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud. It's an emotional scene. On top of all the bereavement of the past decade, now there's this parting from the only two human beings she had a connection with. So I don't mean to be super harsh on Naomi. You could imagine Naomi's face if this was a movie. Right? Grim and weather-beaten and lined and etched with grief having to leave three tombstones back in Moab. And now this parting, it's amazing there are any tears left to cry. And the two daughters-in-law, they say, we will go back with you to your people. That's a good sign, you would think. But again, Naomi insists that they go back to pagan Moab. This is really quite amazing. They are choosing Naomi above marriage, above the prospect of motherhood, above their own biological mothers, and she is rebuffing them. And in verses 11 through 13 there, she gives this speech about how she's too old to provide for them any more sons to marry, and she's too old to have a husband, and even if she could and had a son tonight, would they wait around? Would they refuse to marry? The background of this speech is what's known in the Old Testament as the Leverite Law. The Leverite Law. When a man died without a male child, the brother, the brother of the deceased, was encouraged to marry the widow and raise up children for the dead man's line. Now, in the book of Ruth, now that may sound strange, but if, it, if that sounds strange to your modern ears, just hang in there. We'll say a little bit more about it as the series goes on. But in, in the book of Ruth, this practice and another practice, the practice of a redeemer or a goel who was a relative who could redeem and buy land, they sort of blend together. For now, all I want you to see is this. The two practices have to do with seed and land. And seed and land are basic to the promises made to Abraham, to Israel's life. That's why these laws are there. They're not just random, weird laws. They have to do with the covenant and perpetuating the covenant. And that's what Naomi's referring to. She assumes that, they should, they should have a bro- uh, that she should you know, have a brother who could marry these daughters-in-law. In any event, what becomes interesting in the story, and we'll see this next week, is Naomi has forgotten that she has a redeemer named Boaz back in the land. In fact, she's forgotten that there are two potential redeemers who might be able to provide a husband for her two girls, her two daughters-in-law. Now, it's hard to imagine how she forgot. I'll say more about this when we get there. I mean, look, Bethlehem is not Manhattan, right? You don't lose relatives in Bethlehem. You know, I forgot, I had this guy over here. Oh, oh yeah, and this guy too. There's literally two redeemers in Bethlehem that she's forgotten about. Now, her despair here may be self-inflicted. This is one of the prices you pay when you're away from the land for this long. 
Everything gets out of focus. It's like missing the public worship of God for six or eight weeks in a row. You don't realize what's happened, but the whole world is skewed on you. She's forgotten the Lord's provision in the land. And at the end of verse 13, she says, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. It's terribly sad, these words. She knows God is sovereign, but she's forgotten his goodness. And that happens to people who get battered like this. And when providences are dark and they're foreboding and they're bitter, it's easy to project that, in fact, it's natural, I think, to just project that onto the character of God. Let me give you three words of encouragement about that. Don't do it. Do not read the heart of God off of the toughness or the difficulty of your circumstances. Do not do that. The cross tells you not to do that. The whole history of Israel is a crucible, but it doesn't mean God's a masochist. So Naomi's doing this. She's doing this. She's returning, remember? And when you've been through what she's been through, look, even if it's self-inflicted, it doesn't matter if your darkness is self-inflicted or not. When you've been through what she's been through, it is a long road back to the light of God's countenance. Sometimes it's just a long road back to the light. People like Naomi, we give them a lot of rope. We sympathize with them. We may not endorse everything Naomi says, but we have great sympathies for the Naomi's of the world. And, you know, there's clearly some self-indulgence and some bitterness here. I want to say this on her behalf. I'm going to say a couple things on Naomi's behalf today. The first one is this. She chooses neither, you know, some sort of stoic, stiff upper lip. She doesn't choose that. She doesn't tough it out. The other thing she doesn't choose is a bunch of pious, happy face cliches. Neither one. The source of her misfortune, she says, is not fate, and it's not inexplicable mystery. The Lord's hand has turned against me. She's right about the hand. She's wrong about the intent of the one who's wielding it. And so, here she is, the t- her and the two daughters-in-law, and they weep again. They're crying together. And Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. Orpah's a sensible girl. Family and tribe and kin and one's place, one's economic security, these must come first, Right? You don't reject your customs and your ancestors for some new god. Notice, Orpah is obeying Naomi's logic. Right? She is listening to Naomi. And she, what happens to Orpah? She disappears back into pagan oblivion because she obeys and follows Naomi's advice. So, 
I said it tongue-in-cheek about in-laws giving bad advice sincerely. But well-meaning advice can be tragically wrong. And it's tragically wrong here. And I also want to say a word about sentimentality. The Book of Ruth is a sentimental story. And it has a happy ending. It gets happier and happier as the book goes along. But there are no full happy endings till the happy ending when Jesus appears and judges and restores the heavens and the earth. All stories are broken stories before that. Let me note something that almost never gets said in public about the book of Ruth. Orpah is gone. Back into the darkness of pagan oblivion, and it is Naomi's fault. And that's it. And that does not get fixed in the story. Be careful the advice you give people. Don't just assume that family and nation and tribe and economic interests are the, are the decisive things. So that's the partings. The second thing I want to note here is the pledge. Ruth, on the other hand, clings, the text says, to Naomi. This is a marriage image, a marital image. It is the same word, clinging here, is the same word used in Genesis for a man cleaving to his wife. It's the same word used in the Torah for Israel cleaving to Yahweh. So this is like an outward bodily sign of the total commitment that Ruth is about to announce. And Naomi, whose moral and theological clarity became muddled in Moab. If you wrote a spiritual biography of Naomi, it would be called Muddled in Moab. Astonishingly, again, Naomi says to the clinging Ruth, Ruth is cleaving to her body. And Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now, this is a reckless piece of advice, but think of how reckless it is when you're given to someone who is basically a convert to your faith, who is cleaving to your body, begging to go with you. And this, from the woman who just prayed, may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord give you rest. Now it's, Go back to your nation and to your gods and to your people, who, by the way, are excluded from the Lord's sanctuary for ten generations. Naomi is seeking. She's trying desperately to become an accomplice to idolatry. She's ferociously committed to her advice. And that's what makes Ruth's story so magnificent. She's not going to be deterred the one that's hanging onto her body. In verses 16 here through 18, they are among the most famous and moving verses in the whole Bible. And this is a turning point in the story right here. Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you. She pushes back, or to turn back from you. Stop with this counsel, Naomi. It's not going to work with me. Wherever you go, I will go. I will trace your steps. Your journey will be my journey. Where you stay, I will stay. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your home is going to be my home. 
Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. This is quite remarkable. I mean, in this world, land and people and ethnicity and religion and gods were bound together. They were like a package deal. And most people would think it was inconceivable that you could just change them, that you could just exchange lands and peoples and gods. But Ruth knows that the God of Israel accepts foreigners. And thus, Ruth the Moabitess echoes the very heart of the covenant to her mother-in-law, her confused mother-in-law. She's essentially echoing, I will be your God and you shall be my people. It's a pledge of covenant loyalty that she makes here to Israel's God and to his people. Ruth has been converted. We may not know exactly when, but she's a convert. But this is also a pledge of extraordinary personal commitment, which is why you often see these words at weddings. Now, you've probably seen this text in a wedding service before. It involves the complete crucifixion of Ruth's own will, her own identity, and all her native bonds and ties. I mean, this is legs and arms and skin and bone and body and blood for Ruth. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And here, notice this, she goes beyond a wedding vow. This is more extraordinary than the vows of a wedding. Ruth is young. And she's saying to her mother-in-law, even if you die next week, let's say, I am not going back to Moab. I've put my hand to the plow. I'm not looking back. If I have to live 50 or 60 years in the promised land without you alone, I'm going. I'm staying in the land. And even if it's decades later, I'm dying where you die. I'm buried where you're buried. I'm getting a plot next to your plot. I'm following you into death and into the grave itself. I renounce every other allegiance and every other possible future and every other possible destiny. Because I know to choose is to die. For one thing, it's to die to every other option. That's why young people, one of the reasons young people, in my opinion, are hesitant to get married. They like to keep their options open. Choosing is dying. And Ruth is saying, I'm not going to die Orpah's death. She chose, she died. I'm dying the death of the covenant. And to seal this remarkable pledge, she takes an oath in which she calls on the God of Israel to judge her if she fails to keep her words. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely. Not only does she call on God to judge her, she says, I want God to judge me severely. If even death, not until death do us part, but even if death parts us, may God judge me. Wedding vows are till death do us part. This is something else. This is may God judge me if even death parts us. Beloved, this is perhaps the most extraordinary human confession of loyalty and love and devotion ever uttered. It's hard to see how one could surpass it. 
It's extraordinary. And Naomi's response? Well, she says, now get this. Naomi says, nothing. The text says, she stopped urging her. Literally, the text means she stopped talking with her. Naomi basically ignores the pledge. I mean, it does back her off, sending her back to Moab. She grudgingly capitulates to having Ruth along. Not exactly the response I think that Ruth was looking for. Ruth doesn't even get the dignity of a reply. She's already dying, Ruth. She takes on a certain humiliation now, a certain invisibility in the narrative. And that brings me to the third point, the return. Notice this in verse 19. This is a subtle way the narrator is going to show you Ruth's humiliation. The two women, two women, they, they came to Bethlehem. And they arrived. The town was stirred because of them. And the women of the town said, can this be Naomi? Again, Ruth is invisible. She's ignored. And then Naomi laments, don't call me Naomi, that means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. It doesn't seem like it's just her outward circumstances that are bitter. The bitterness has infected Naomi. Again, her returning is in progress. And this is another thing I want to encourage you with. I mean, the book of Hebrews tells us that we can fall short of the grace of God. And when we do, roots of bitterness spring up. And Naomi has a root of bitterness that she's going to have to deal with. So not only don't read the, don't read the hand of God in your dark providence, don't let the dark providence embitter you. This is going to be a battle, a returning battle in, in the hearts of human beings. And so Naomi says this. She goes, I went away full, she says. I went away full. I don't want to skip this. You know why? Because this is self-centered nostalgia. Her family left in an act of presumption, an act of disobedience during a famine. That's glossed over. For her, it's just, I went away full. Full for her means I had my husbands and my sons when I left. Well, that's true. You know, you know who else went away full? The prodigal son, he went away full. I went away full. And then in an unthinking act of callousness, I know I'm being tough on Naomi. Trust me, I really love Naomi. It's this unthinking act of callousness with Ruth. Now, Ruth has made this pledge. Ruth has clung to her body. And Ruth is standing right next to her. And Naomi says to the women in the town, this is heartbreaking. I went away full. The Lord brought me back empty. I got, I've got nothing. There's, there she is. There's Ruth right there. The Lord brought me back empty. There's a kind of wallowing self-pity 10 years after the, down the road here with Naomi that's still there. It's terribly sad. And the two of them, and the narrator constantly designates Ruth as a Moabite, so you remember this, right? They arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The famine opens the chapter. Now the end of the chapter, the harvest is beginning. The story is turned. 
So I'm going to close with three quick applications, one for each point in your outline. First, with respect to the partings, I want to say this. In the end, in the life of Christian discipleship, there are only Orpahs and Ruths. Right? There are sensible people who choose clan and family and jobs and their own prospects over the terrifying uncertainty of following Jesus. There are Orpahs. There's lots of Orpahs in the Christian church. And to them, Jesus says this, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me above and beyond all earthly bonds. But in the end, the only kind of disciples there are are Ruth's. She's a picture of the grace that summons the Gentiles radically from the ends of the earth. Second thing here on her pledge, I want you to notice this. It is impossible to cleave to God without simultaneously cleaving to his people. Right? One would look at this scene with Ruth and say, does she believe in Yahweh or does she believe in Naomi? Which one is it? It's I will go where you go. I and you, I and you, I and you. And at the end, it's and your God will be my God. And here I give Naomi her due. Ruth must have learned the faith. She must have come to trust Yahweh through Naomi's witness, as weak and as fractured and as confused as it is. And that's another encouraging thing. God is using your weak, fractured, failing witness. Somehow, Naomi bore witness and Ruth got it. She saw this woman endure what she had to endure up close in a decade or more of agony, and she wants her, and she wants her God. And clearly between them, the bond between them, Naomi's insensitivities to aside, the bond is more than just a, a, a standard in-law relationship. There's a kind of deep friendship between Naomi and Ruth. And, and I, I want to make this point about this. I think that these kinds of friendships, these close personal bonds, are critical for real change in our lives. I don't think over time you get a lot of real change if you come to church three out of every four Sundays and see people for 45 minutes. I don't think it happens. Right? There, there's a sense in which God has designed it so that this kind of bond is necessary. Now, you can't have this kind of bond with a lot of people, but it's necessary for real change and renewal. There are people who won't believe in God until they believe in you. <laughs> There's a sense in which she's clinging to Naomi and saying, I can believe in Naomi's God. And I'll come to God. In one sense, this is true of bearing witness to the gospel. People always come to Christ through the witness of other people. If people don't find us credible, they're not going to believe our God. And Ruth found Naomi credible. She wanted that. And so if we haven't forged these kind of bonds, we should seek to forge them because they're critical in enriching and transforming our lives. And finally, the last application. We must see this. I think while Ruth is our model, and while we have to avoid the example of Orpah, we all have a lot of Naomi in us especially when things go badly, right? We have to keep returning. And returning here means we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. And this is a gospel which has come forth to us through Naomi's anguish, as we will see. 
And in the language of this passage, the gospel sounds something like this. There was one who was full, who did leave his father's house full, who did become empty, who left not in rebellion, but to bring bread to the world. There was one who clings to our humanity. And against that obedient one, the hand of the Lord went forth. The Almighty struck him and testified against him that he might be afflicted. And that one felt the deep bitterness of the Almighty's dark providences. And in neither your lives or your deaths or your burials will that one ever be severed from you. For in his hesed, in his kindness, he brings all us prodigals, all halting, struggling believers, all Naomi's called to be Ruth's out of our wanderings, out of our seeking bread that doesn't satisfy, back to Canaan, to the house of bread, to the land of rest and plenty. Amen.